One of the easiest things in the world these days is to find photographs of rubble and devastation. We're all familiar with the, the images of that horrible destruction on September 11th, 2001, an, an event whose images literally changed the course of human history. Nothing has been the same since that day in a lot of ways and changed the way we live in America. We remember and honor the people who lost their lives and remember the sacrifices of the first responders and those who rushed into the devastation, who rushed into the rubble after two of the strongest and tallest buildings in the world crumpled within minutes of the attacks. In the United States, we're not strangers at all to rubble and the effects of devastation. Seems like on a regular basis now we hear about rioting and looting and the wreckage that's created across our land in one major city after another. Businesses are burned, lives are destroyed, and communities work to try to figure out how to put it back together. And they're still working on that. Whether it's a, a national disaster of some kind, like a flood where thousands of people try to piece together the shattered remains of their existence, or whether it comes from the normal storms of life that each one of us faces, families and as individuals, unemployment, illness, cancer, loss of a spouse or a child, the devastation of divorce or abuse. I think sometimes if, if we just had eyes to see as we walk around our community and we go in the stores and we go to the park and we go to the island park and watch people play their sports and those kind of things, if if we just had eyes to see of what the, the rubble and the devastation that so many people are living in. And the question is, how do we respond to rubble and devastation? Whether it's in our own lives or whether it's people in our church or it's in our church or whether it's in other people that we know, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, or spiritual. When you become of a desperate need or a situation, how do you know what your personal response is to be? To that. Maybe it's something that your neighbor or your co-worker is going through or it's a brother and sister in Christ that are going through something very devastating. And What should you do first and how do you know when and how to get other people involved in this need? How do you know if and when you should be involved? Or is it somebody else's responsibility? Or on a different level, how does God go about getting our attention as believers so he can begin to work through us and maybe even begin a new work that we hadn't even thought of, something he wants to do for his kingdom in our community? These are the kinds of questions that God's word answers for us this morning in the book of Nehemiah, in the first chapter. When we are faced or we see somebody else facing an impossible, devastating circumstance or situation, whether it's in your own life or somebody else's life, how do we deal with the rubble? People are troubled and rubbled. <laughs> that might be something we say over and over as we go through the book of Nehemiah. And there are three parts to this first chapter of Nehemiah, and we're just going to cover the first two this morning. First, we will see God's servant recognizing the need. God's servant recognizes the need. Secondly, we'll see the reaction of God's servant to the need. And finally, in this chapter, the action of God's servant. Recognition, reaction, and then action. This morning, we'll just study the recognition and the reaction of God's servant. 
And then next Sunday, we'll get into the action of God's servant. So please turn in your Bibles once again to the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Nehemiah is writing this. He introduces himself in the, the first verse. He says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital. Now stop there just for a minute. Go to the end of chapter 1, at the very end, as, inter- as Nehemiah continues to introduce himself. He says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. The cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah's story opens in the wintertime. Chislev is roughly December on our calendar. The month of Chislev is the end of December, or the end of November, first part of December. The year was 444 or 445 B.C. We know that because Nehemiah tells us in chapter 2 that it was in the 20th year, the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, the emperor of Persia the emperor of the known world. And Nehemiah was in the city of Susa, or sometimes it's translated Shushan. Now, Susa was the capital of the great Media Persian Empire. Susa was considered by the Jews at that time to be the capital of the known world. It was considered by a lot of people to be the capital of the known world because it was the capital of the the known world. It was the hub of political activity. It was the place of ultimate decision-making. And today, Susa is one of those places with spectacular ruins, which about 10 years ago, for the first time, the Iranian government, Susa is located in Iran, opened it to the public for the very first time. And there's some great ruins there. Susa is located in modern-day Iran, in the Zagos Mountains. I know that doesn't mean too much to you. Well, it's 150 miles north of the tip of the Red, or the the. The, which sea is it? The Persian Gulf. The Persian Gulf. And if that doesn't work, we're about uh, 240 miles east of Baghdad. Baghdad's on the news a lot these days. So you go to Baghdad, you cross the Tigris, the Euphrates River, and then you've got Susa east over there. Now, was it Susa, this very place where most of the events in the book of Esther took place? It was here that the prophet Daniel received most of his visions at Susa. In fact, Susa is the traditional burial place for the prophet Daniel. The cone-shaped building here is the memorial that supposedly marks the place of Daniel's burial. Uh, I I know it's in Iran. That's not a very cool place or nice place. But uh, since it's not in Iraq, at least... ISIS has not destroyed it because they would be out to get this place. They've destroyed the the tomb of Jonah and several other places uh, in Iraq. And there's inscriptions on the ruins. These are the ruins of the palace, the same palace we're talking about here, Nehemiah, the palace at Susa, that say the construction of this great palace was begun by King Xerxes, King Xerxes. Now, Xerxes is known in the Bible uh, in the book of Esther and in the book of Ezra as Hahasuerus. You heard of Ahasuerus? Ahasuerus was the one who took Esther as his queen after he disposed of Queen Vashti. She fell out of, of favor. And so these are the ruins of the very palace. Remember when Esther went in and had to talk to the king and that could have cost her her life? And the gate... 
Well, these are the actual ruins here uh, as well. And so this would be the place that uh, where Esther was at, Daniel was at, Nehemiah uh, was at. And the gate, which there's not this much left today, this is the gate at Persepolis. And uh, we know from the archaeological digs that the, the palace at Susa was very much the same. This was the palace gate, think of it as Susa, not Persepolis, where Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, as well as her garden, sat so many times so Esther could come out of the palace and sit with Mordecai and they could talk about how God was going to save the Jews from all of that. Now the events recorded in the book of Nehemiah took place about 35 years after the events of Esther. So you got Esther, go 35 years later, and you've got Nehemiah. Did Nehemiah know Esther personally? We can't say for sure, but being an influential Jew in the palace, much like Daniel and Esther, Nehemiah was certainly well acquainted with the events in the book of Esther. You know, go back 35 years, that's not that long ago. I had a bunch of us from the class of 69, a bunch of guys got together this week, and I cold home, came home and told you, they're a bunch of old guys. <laughs> Weren't we all? <laughs> yeah. So go back 35 years. We're, you know, so from Nehemiah 35 years back, you know, depending on how old he was, yeah, that would have been very close. Now, this is the tomb of King Artaxerxes whom Nehemiah served as cupbearer. Now, Artaxerxes was the son of Xerxes. Uh, we're not sure, but more than likely, his mother would have been Vashti, whom Artaxerxes got rid of. Put another way, Esther was the stepmother of King Artaxerxes, who Nehemiah served. And Artaxerxes finished the work on the palace that his father Xerxes had begun. So that just gives us kind of a picture of, of the place. And so Artaxerxes completed this, this magnificent palace that Xerxes had begun. And so Nehemiah begins, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was at Susa, the capital. Literally, it's Susa, the palace. And so palace, this is an artist's representation of where, where Nehemiah was, where he served. Susa was the winter palace of the emperor of the known world, Artaxerxes, and Nehemiah was his cupbearer. Now, the king's cupbearer had a very interesting job. It sounds pretty menial to us today. Was he a server or something going like that? But you see, the Persian kings of that day were always in danger of being poisoned by a rival. Somebody was always scheming against them. And it was the cupbearer's job to taste everything that went to the king's table. Wine, prime rib, fruit, fish, nuts, everything. If it didn't kill the cupbearer, then it was served at the king's table. The cupbearer there was the most trusted man by the king more than anybody else in the empire. It was a great job as long as you like risk-taking and you love great food. And so Nehemiah, as the cupbearer, was highly esteemed and trusted to begin with, but because of his position, he had constant and regular access to the ruler of the world. In fact, the cupbearer had more influence on the king than any of his military leaders and nobles. Nehemiah had it great in Susa, a great place to live, great job at the palace, cupbearer to the king, a position of great influence. 
But Nehemiah receives word from the home of his fathers, his ancestors from Jerusalem, 800 miles away across the desert. Verse 1 again. Verse 2, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. It's been said that a Jew never forgets Jerusalem. And after being there, I can see why. Even today, so much of the Jewish mindset still centers in Jerusalem. It centers in the temple that was destroyed in 70 A.D. Whoever you talk to and, and uh, whatever Jew you talk to, whether it's in this country or in other countries or in, in, in the Middle East, their hearts are still centered in, in Jerusalem. And that was certainly true of Nehemiah. Even though he'd been born in exile, and like Daniel had risen to a comfortable position of influence and respect, his heart with, was with the people, the remnant, the people who had returned, first with Zerubbabel and then a few more with Zerubbabel or with Ezra 70 years later. And Nehemiah wanted to know about the people. He wanted to know the condition of the holy city of Jerusalem and the answer to Nehemiah's question just broke his heart. The remnant that are there are in great distress, they're in reproach, the walls of Jerusalem are still broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. The word translated great distress means misery and calamity. It's the same word used that Jeremiah used when he was talking about the initial destruction of Jerusalem the calamity that they faced when it was leveled and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar 140 years before Nehemiah's time. That same word, great distress. In other words, the people, the city, was still in the same kind of great distress as they were when it was originally destroyed to begin with. Things hadn't gotten any better in the last 140 years. And we are told in the book of Ezra that there was an initial like the, the initial attempt to rebuild the temple, and then Zerubbabel got the temple rebuilt, there was initial intent to rebuild the city and rebuild the walls and, and the gates for the purpose of protecting the city's inhabitants and providing protection for the temple. But the effort had been thwarted by the enemies of the Jews. The rebuilding had begun, but now Nehemiah hears that even the new gates had been burned. As soon as they put something up, somebody comes down and comes along and knocks it down again. So the remnant people were in great distress in calamity, and then he says they were in reproach. The word translated reproach means sharp, cutting, penetrating. It carries the idea of hearing the brunt of cutting words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words cut to the heart every time they do. The Jews were being slandered, they were being criticized by people who were enemies of their faith. And we'll get to meet some of these choice individuals before we complete our study in Nehemiah. Sanballat, Tobiah, and others, they really are a piece of work. Nehemiah is brokenhearted, having anticipated good news concerning the city and the people that he loved. It was worse than he could ever imagine. And verses 4 through 11 contain Nehemiah the cupbearer's reaction to this. And for the rest of our time, we're just going to focus on verse 4. 
verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1. This is Nehemiah's reaction to this very severe need. Verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Weeping and mourning for days? You know, I think people today would say, oh, come on, Nehemiah, get over it. Pull yourself together. Jerusalem is 800 miles away. You're probably never going to see it anyway. You've got a cushy job in the palace. The king would never let you go, even if you could do anything about it, which you can't. Do what most people would do, Nehemiah. When you see that need on TV, send in 19 bucks once a month. That's what we're supposed to do. You know, this is one of my pet peeves. Now we can support St. Jude's Children's Hospital for less money a month than we can support a puppy in a home someplace. Have we got things messed up or what? You know, send in a couple of thousand, you know, if we get a couple of thousand people to send in that kind of money, we'll solve this thing. And I know what the normal response in the, to the severe uh, need in Jerusalem would be today, especially in a political year. What's the matter with those clowns running things in Jerusalem? Who blew it? Why can't get they get their act together? Write a letter to your congressman. Let's get a congressional investigation going. <laughs> Let's get something going. Send a petition around. Make your voice heard in Susa for the sake of Jerusalem. If anybody had a voice in Susa, Nehemiah did. But Nehemiah started to cry, and he carried on for days. And this just isn't any old word used for weeping. The word means to bewail, to bewail. Nehemiah was wailing and mourning for days. It's the same word that's used when Eli the priest came in and he found Hannah praying and wailing because she could not have a child. She was on the steps of the temple of the Lord and Eli thought she was drunk. But as I consider the weeping of mourning of people like Nehemiah and Hannah, or the heavy sobs of the Lord Jesus that shook his body as he saw the shining city of Jerusalem laying out before him and wept on account of their unbelief. You know, I have to ask myself, how much of the Spirit of God is in me for the glory of God and for his purposes? That when I see those purposes thwarted and mocked, I move to tears. I move to tears. When, if ever, have we wept for God in his glory? Wept for loved ones or friends or over unbelievable per perplexity? Wept over our church? When, if ever, do we weep before the Lord? And as we look at the Bible, Hannah did, Daniel did, King David did. The last chapters in the book of Genesis, Joseph, who was taken into Egypt, weeps over and over and over. Mordecai, Micah, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, Jesus wept before the Father. Nehemiah wailed. Paul said that he wrote to the Corinthians with many tears. The second letter of the Corinthians is tear-stained. He didn't say this to make the, the Corinthians cry or feel sorry for him, but he let them know of his tears because his tears were an expression of his love and his concern for them. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says that Christ offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears before the Father. Paul said to Timothy that he recalled Timothy's tears 
and long to see him. Now, don't take the application of this to go home this afternoon and turn on the news and try to figure out something to cry over. Oh, there's plenty, plenty to cry over. But Nehemiah's reaction to the bad news concerning God's city and God's people and God's purposes revealed the heart of Nehemiah. His sorrow wasn't manufactured, it wasn't conjured up. And what I see from this, one of our prayers needs to be that God would break our hearts and that he would break our hearts over the right things. Break our hearts over the right things so we might be moved by the Spirit of God to be involved in the right things. The media is full of stuff that breaks our hearts and we hear things constantly that, that can do that, but we need to pray that God would break our hearts over the right things. That the Spirit of God then would move us, as he did Nehemiah, to be involved in those things. I think of that great hymn that we sing once in a while. Let your heart be broken for a world in need. Feed the mouths that hunger, soothe the wounds that bleed. Give the cup of water and loaf of bread. Be the hands of Jesus, serving in his stead. You know, we can't be used of God to rebuild broken walls, whatever those need to be, until we have broken hearts. We can't be used of God to build until we are broken. Verse 4 again of, first of chapter 1, Nehemiah adds, And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So first of all, Nehemiah's response to impossible situation was that he sat down and wept and mourned for days. And secondly, he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What does it mean to fast? Fasting simply means to go without eating. So that's a great definition, but that's what it means. Now, many Christians uh, practice the discipline of fasting. They will systematically miss a meal to seek a spiritual result. An interesting scripture mentions fasting quite often. There's 77 times that fasting is mentioned in, in the Bible. That's a lot. And in the New Testament, Jesus fasted, Paul fasted. In the book of Acts, the church fasted. While the church was fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit said to, said to them, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have called them to do. The church was fasting and praying, and we have the first missionaries that are sent out by the church. In a simplest sense, fasting means to miss a meal for one major purpose or to miss something that we crave for one major purpose. And so that's so you can zero in on your walk and relationship with God. It's when the spiritual need outweighs the physical craving. When the spiritual need outweighs the physical craving. The ladies are going to be talking about a lot about craving these next few months. And that's one of the things they're going to see in that. Fasting and praying is for the express purpose of seeking God's face and seeking his will. Seeking God's presence and seeking his purpose. When the prophet Daniel read in the writings of, the, of Jeremiah, and he saw in the writings of Jeremiah the time frame for the exile in Babylon, 70 years, Daniel wrote, So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes are symbolic of the brokenness of a, of a person's heart. Daniel sought the Lord and sought to understand God's purposes. And as a result, 
of that, God opened up to Daniel all those marvelous visions and things that we see in the book of Daniel, the Messiah and God's plan for the ages. Fasting is for the purpose of seeking God's presence and God's purposes. When the disciples couldn't cast out a demon one time, out of a man's son who was a lunatic, and, uh, and they got beat up in the process, they go back to Jesus, and later Jesus told his men, this kind, kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. If they weren't praying and fasting, then what were they doing? They were probably just talking to the demon, telling it, get out of here, you get out of there, get out of here, get out of here. In other words, they were trying to obtain a spiritual result by operating in the flesh. It just doesn't work. Spiritual results come from the things of the Spirit. And if in Nehemiah, if we put the chronology together at this point, for in chapter 2, we discover that Nehemiah fasted and prayed for several days. Actually, his praying lasted several months, about four months, to the month of Nisan, which was four months after the month of Chivlov. Before we get to chapter 2, when Artaxerxes asked him, what's wrong? You see, Nehemiah knew something, maybe it's instinctively, but it came out of his praying and fasting, that we all need to know. If I don't pray, I won't see God work. Did you ever think of that? If I don't pray, I won't see God work. People who see God work are people who, who pray. Oh, God will still work even if you don't pray, but you won't see it or recognize it when he does it. He will do what he does, but without prayer, I won't see it. I may see something happen, and I might kind of figure out, oh, God must have done that or something like that. But if I'm not involved spiritually, I'm going to miss the things of the Spirit of God. What God does goes right by. You know, it's kind of like theology class. When uh, Dr. Reese was talking, we had no idea what he was talking about. We'd go like this over our heads, going over my head. <laughs> now, I mentioned that in a sermon one time in Coeur d'Alene. And a couple of weeks later, a whole bunch of people in the back row, way far away, were all going like this. <laughs> you know, we, we miss what God is doing. You know, uh, I'm going to reveal a pastoral secret here. Like Paul, I'm going to say, Lo, I tell you a mystery. Because when a pastor gives an invitation on a Sunday morning, he invites people to step out into the aisle because that person has committed his or her life to Christ or made a commitment. The pastor can look around the congregation as that person is coming forward, and the pastor can tell who exactly has prayed for that person who's committing to Christ. Every, person's, every pastor has seen it dozens of times. We've seen the blank looks. We've seen the puzzled stares. We've seen the cynical glares. We've also seen people looking at their watch, wondering when the service was going to be over. But every pastor has also seen the joyful expression in the watery eyes and sometimes the tear-streaked faces of those who have remembered that person before the throne of grace in prayer. And I think all the angels in heaven are rejoicing over one sinner who repents. And I look over and I go, what's the matter with so-and-so? They're missing this whole thing. They're missing God work. And I can think of three reasons that we don't pray as we ought. Romans 8.26 says we do not know how to pray as we ought. Three reasons. We are self-sufficient, we are self-satisfied, or we are self-righteous. As long as I can think I can work it out all by myself, I'm not going to bother God with it. 
I'm self-sufficient. I don't need to pray. As long as I'm doing pretty good and my needs are being met pretty well, the paychecks are coming in on a regular basis, I like my job, I like my family, everything seems to be going okay, I don't need to ask God for anything, things are okay, I'm self-satisfied. And as long as I think I'm a pretty good guy, as I said before, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do, I'd never cheat on my wife, or on my taxes, or in my business, I'm an honest guy of integrity, I don't need help in those things. I'm self-righteous. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee over in Luke chapter 18? If you'd like to turn to it, Luke chapter 18, verse 11. The tax collector and the Pharisee went to the temple to pray. Remember how Jesus says the self-righteous Pharisee began his prayer? We find it in verse 11 of Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Now, there's a couple of ways we can take this to himself. It could mean he's praying silently, but we know that Pharisees didn't pray silently. They, they like to shout it out. When they gave offerings, they liked somebody to blow a trumpet first so everybody could see him put it in the, the offering plate. And it doesn't mean that he's actually praying to himself, but what it means is to himself could be for himself. He was praying for his own interest in his own advantage. The self-righteous Pharisee stood and prayed for his own interest, his own advantage, and we see that in his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Now, when I pray a self-righteous prayer like this, and this is my attitude in prayer, I'm going to completely miss what God is doing in my life or anybody else's life. And when I'm self-righteous, instead of weeping and mourning over the devastation that somebody else is going through, if I'm self-righteous, I'm going to criticize that person. I'm going to say, oh, they ought to be able to get out of that. They, they made their own bed. They should lie in it, those kind of things. They should be able to pull oneself up by their own bootstraps like I have done. And we're going to criticize them for getting themselves into that horrible mess, or we're going to blame it on the wrong people. Thank God that I'm not like one of them. But, says Jesus, verse 13, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Which one of these guys saw God work? The Pharisee or the tax collector? Jesus adds, verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now next time we're going to take a closer look at Nehemiah's prayer in verses 5 through 11. But I want to close today by giving you some practical thoughts concerning the application of God's Word in verses 1 through 4. When you begin or you see a, a severe need, whether it's in your own life or your family, you see the devastation or rubble that might be in somebody else's life, or, or maybe it's a, a ministry need that concerns several troubled and rubbled people. How can you begin to discern that God wants you to be specifically involved? Involved at a prayer level? Involved at a ministry level? 
How do you know when God is calling you to be his servant in a particular ministry? Or, or to simply be involved in meeting someone's needs at a very grassroots level? How do you know you are called to this need in some regard, at least in prayer and maybe more? So let me give you three principles drawn out of our text this morning, and then we're going to apply them in a very specific way. God begins to involve you by giving you a clear recognition of the need. Giving you a clear recognition of the need. One of the reasons that Nehemiah was so touched by the needs of his people was because he saw the needs so clearly. It was so clear that people are in great distress and reproach. Matthew records that one time Jesus, seeing the people, seeing the people. Now the word seeing doesn't mean that he spotted them. Oh, those are people. Look at all those people. It means he perceived them. He understood them. He understood the suffering they were going through. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. God begins to involve you by giving you a clear recognition of the need. Now, incidentally, don't be surprised if others just don't see it. A lot of people just don't see it. Others may not see it at all. Remember, God is opening up your eyes, opening up your heart at this point. Don't worry about the other guys who don't get it. Secondly, God begins to involve you by giving you a personal concern for the need. Jesus, seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them. Nehemiah sat down and wept and mourned for days. The word compassion means to suffer with. When you truly have compassion, you suffer with them. It is personal. You feel the suffering in some regard. You actually suffer with that person, those people who are hurting. And like all suffering, it takes something out of, of you. The word in the Greek means to be moved in the inward parts. Blacknos. <laughs> it's a word that you actually feel it in your gut. Jesus felt it for these people. A personal concern that hit him right here. It hurts you to see what these people are going through. God begins to involve you by giving a clear recognition of the need and by giving you a personal concern for the need. And thirdly, by giving you the desire to go to God with the need. Desire to go to God. Even though Nehemiah was in a position where he could approach his earthly boss, Artaxerxes, he first took the need to God. I've quoted A.J. Gordon before, that faithful servant of God, Baptist preacher, personal friend of D.L. Moody. I can do more than pray, or you can do more than pray, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. You can do more than pray, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed, because you have to pray first. So God begins to involve you by giving you a clear recognition of the need, by giving you a personal concern for the need, and thirdly, by giving you the desire to go first to God with the need. Father, I pray that uh, as each one of us thinks about what we have learned from God's word this morning and what our commitment is to this church that we all love so dearly, Lord. To our Savior that we love dearly. And to one another, all whom we love dearly, Father. That you will use this to build your kingdom in this place, to build your church. And we ask it in faith, in Jesus' name, amen.